Good morning, my name is Zach and I'm part of the staff team at Central. And for the next 20 minutes or so, we're going to take some time to read scripture together and reflect on what we think God is saying through it. We're currently in a series looking at the life of David. And the lens through which we're looking at David's story is identity. We've been reading the life of David and reflecting what does this life teach us about who God is and about how we follow Jesus better. When we look at the life of David, who is described by Israel as their greatest king, we see a very real account of someone who, for all of their faults and failures, pursued God's heart. I'm very excited to say that this morning we're going to take some time to reflect on worship. When I found out that I was going to get to preach on worship, I felt a bit like someone in week one of lockdown who discovers toilet roll in a supermarket. It's like, I need to take all of it. I'm going to read this quote and take this book. I promise I'm going to try and keep this to one sermon as best as I can. Naomi reminded us last week that in the songbook of the Bible, the Psalms, of 150 Psalms, it's likely that 73 of them were written by David. David was at heart a worshipper. He worshipped God as a shepherd, as someone in exile, as a king, and as someone who failed considerably in his life. There's so much that we could learn from his consistent response to worship God in all circumstances. But the place where I want us to focus today is in an incredible and at times slightly puzzling account in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 2 through 22. We're going to journey through this passage together and pause at points to reflect on what it teaches us about worship. And through this passage, I want to suggest three things. First, that worship begins with wonder, with recognising the holiness and greatness of God. And then in response, it inspires our whole hearts, a wholehearted response. And as we engage with God in this way, it leads to our transformation. Those are the three things. Wonder, wholehearted response and transformation. Let's read the passage together and see where we get to. Starting in verse 2, chapter 6. David and all his men went to Bala and Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which is on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because of the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, the place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? And then therefore decides to leave the ark where it is for three months as he decides what to do next. In order for us to understand what's fully going on here, we need to know the context. So we need to think right back to the start of 1 Samuel, the previous book. And in this section of scripture, the Israelites stop honouring God and they start treating the Ark of God, the place of God's presence, 
as something that they could wield. They bring it into battle, assuming that they're going to get victory so long as the Ark is with them. And so on one occasion, they do go into battle and they're defeated by one of their enemies called the Philistines. And they who then claim the Ark for themselves, believing that they'll suddenly now have this weapon to use in war. It doesn't really work out like that. If you have time to read some of the stories of 1 Samuel, then you'll see that actually it doesn't go that well for them when they try and use the Ark that way. And in fact, they decide to abandon it. They put it on a cart with oxen and just send it off on its own. 20 years later, David becomes king. And one of the first things he wants to do is to bring the Ark back home, to bring God back into the center of the life of the Israelite people. But what he and poor Uzzah do is make the same mistake that the Israelites did in 1 Samuel. They do two things. First, David put the ark on a cart to travel to Jerusalem. The ark was built to be a place which carried the presence of God and reminded the Israelites that they were his people and he was their God. When the ark was built, they were given very specific instructions. And if you've read any of the first few books of the Bible, then you'll know that. They go into a lot of detail. The ark was to be carried on poles on the shoulders of priests, peoples whose job it was to worship God, to honour his presence, and to present God's people to him in his presence. Instead of following these instructions, they put it on a cart. They put it on a new cart, so I mean, that's good. But a cart is the kind of thing they'd also transport crops and animals and food on. It was a very clear statement as to how they perceived the presence of God. They were still worshipping, but they had missed something crucial. And then second, while they are travelling with the ark on the cart, the cart stumbles. And so Uzzah goes out and puts his hand directly on the ark to try and steady it. And again, another one of the clear laws that Israelite people are given is do not touch the ark because it is... The holy place is the place where God's presence dwells. And so in response, he is struck down and drops dead. It seems a bit harsh, doesn't it? It seems like there's a bit of an overreaction. But what had they missed? They had lost perspective on who God really was. They had forgotten that God was holy, that God was creator, not creature, perfect and incomparable, not something to engage with at their own pleasure, but the God who made them and called them his own. And so on some level, despite the fact that they were worshipping and processing in front of the ark, they had lost perspective on who it was they were worshipping. I wonder if we are in danger of doing the same. We don't have a physical ark representing God's presence, but through Christ we now have the presence of God dwelling in us. Our bodies are the new ark of the new temple, the dwelling place of God, the Holy Spirit. I turned uh, 17 in October 2006, and I was determined to try and pass my driving test before Christmas. I managed, 22nd December, I just got in there. One month later, almost exactly, I crashed my mum's car and completely wrote it off, traveling at about 15 miles an hour, which, yes, it's quite an impressive feat. My mom's car wasn't particularly new and insurance didn't really pay out all that well for it because of that. A few months later, she was looking to buy a new car so that she could drive, which is helpful and needed. And she spent a little bit of savings, including some savings that had been set aside to help with my studies and to buy this new car, which I mean is completely valid because I crashed the car and I was 17, so I had no money. But 
I had a serious lapse in judgment after that. And I remember that my mum and I got, got into an argument because I was determined that I should be put on the insurance. I thought that since it had been purchased using some of my savings, that I should be able to drive this new car because it kind of was mine too. That was the way that I thought. And I completely missed in the process that first, I crashed the car. Second, I crashed the car. Third, I crashed the car. <laughs> my mum had every right to do whatever she wanted with the money that she had saved. And I simply was taking for granted her incredible generosity at even saving money for me. To the point that I expected that she would maybe even let me share ownership of the car. I know, mum, if you're watching this, I'm sorry again. If anyone wants to apologise on my behalf, then I'll give you her number at the end. But before you get too judgy of my teenage selfishness, all of us do exactly the same thing in our relationship with God, don't we? We take him for granted. We take for granted his presence, his incredible grace and mercy towards us, and the incredible truth, the amazing truth, that the God of the universe chooses to stoop down to meet us where we are. What for many of us starts off as a constant pursuit of discovery, which causes us to wonder and leads us to worship, to spontaneously call out gratefully and thankfully for all that God has done for us, very quickly becomes normal and uninspired to us. And in fact, it has never been easier for us to become like this or be more true of us than in this moment. When we gathered in a building together, to worship, we inspired one another. We together lifted our eyes, shifted our perspective, no matter whether we'd had the best or the worst week, and reminded each other that the life that we lead is not normal. It is extraordinary because we worship and follow a God who is far greater than we could ever understand, and yet at the same time is the God who is with us, who makes himself known to us. It is the most incredible of truths. Right now, we can't do that in the same way. When we sit at home and watch in our living rooms, if we were honest, we can engage in our own terms. There's something very comfortable about it. And I mean, don't get me wrong. I probably enjoy the relaxed pace of Sunday more than anyone. Not having a 7.45 a.m. rehearsal time every Sunday has been a dream. I find myself sometimes saying I could get used to this. But alongside that, as um, the very wise Bex Lee said, we are hardwired to multitask on screens, to never really give our full attention. And so it's very likely that we will end up doing the same when we're watching gatherings online. The place which was before protected attention towards God for us could become easily another place of distraction. Particularly when we're not bombarding you with new camera angles every 30 seconds and bright colours, which is what we're used to when we watch TV, isn't it? What ends up happening is that we could, and none of us will know, we could choose when we want to sing, when we don't, when we decide that we like the song or don't, or whether we prefer to actually just check our phone and see who's text us, or say hello in the live chat instead. If anyone has just posted saying hello in the live chat, then, you know, there's no judgment here. It's, there's grace, there's forgiveness. You can get prayer at the end. I'm not saying this because I want to guilt you into singing, or to increase our stats of people who watch the gathering in one sitting. Those are secondary at best. I'm saying this because we need to be alert to the danger of this season that we're in. A.W. Tozer says it like this. 
Left to ourselves, we tend immediately to reduce God to manageable terms. Let me say that again. Left to ourselves, we tend immediately to reduce God to manageable terms. Without a regular space each week where we fully presence ourselves together as church family and shift our attention towards God, our perspective on who God is could very easily begin to shrink. And in the process, we can lose our wonder. Our wonder at who God is, our wonder at his character, his holiness, his activity and his presence. Worship is the place where we reclaim wonder. Worship is an essential act of us as church, turning our attention towards God, who is beyond our understanding, beyond our grasp, and yet who comes close to us. In a time where we can't do that together in the same way, all of us need to own this pursuit for ourselves, to get discontent with what we know of God, and to go in our own pursuit of discovery, expecting that God is more of himself to show us. To worship is to wonder. So let's return to this passage and see how David and the Israelites respond from here. So starting from verse 12 in chapter 6. Now King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. He gave them a loaf of bread, a cake of dates and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women. And all people went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today going around half-naked and full of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honour. Now everything has changed. The detail in the text shows us this. Now people are carrying the ark on poles on their shoulders. They recognise and they're worshipping God for who he is. And did you notice that they stop every six steps to sacrifice an ox and a fattened calf? It's a five mile walk. That would have taken forever. (laughs) And they bring the ark of God into Jerusalem with huge amounts of celebration and worship. Everyone gets involved. The presence of God with Israel is something which impacts every individual and everyone plays a part. David's own response is incredibly telling. He dances half naked through the streets. He is the king of Israel. He is supposed to be the person who carries the kind of pomp and procession 
of uh, royalty and he's making an absolute fool of himself and he knows it but he doesn't care in fact he's embarrassing himself so much that his wife disapproves of his actions but he responds by saying i will become even more undignified in this i will humiliate myself even further david realizes again who god is and his response to is to worship with abandon as we discover who god is Worship is our wholehearted response. I remember the first time that I experienced this kind of encounter with God. And I was 15 years old. I was at an event called Sold Out, which is a number of churches in Aberdeen gathering together to worship. And as I was surrounded by all of these people pursuing God together and singing about who he was and who we are, I became overwhelmed by the sense of reality of who God was. And my only response, the natural response to me, was to abandon myself and praise. Um, I was an emotional wreck. And I still remember it so vividly because it marked me as a worshipper from then on. I then knew who I was and what God was calling me to. Our offering, our response to God, doesn't need to be perfect. It doesn't justify us. It doesn't bring God closer. It doesn't determine whether we are good or not in God's books. God is already with us and dwelling in us. And this is a point where we have to move from the Old Testament to point to Jesus. We don't need to sacrifice an ox or a fattened calf every six steps, even though we have God dwelling in us. Jesus is already perfectly representing us before God the Father. He has already perfectly made a way for us relationship with God. But what worship still does look like for us is our undivided attention. It just needs to be us, all of us, fully us, surrendered us, our whole being actively directed towards God. Whatever wholeheartedly looks like for you in this season, if you bringing your all looks like quiet reflection after a week of exhausting parenting, and that's all you have to give, and that is enough. If it looks like dancing on a coffee table in the middle of worship, that is enough. If it looks like singing your lungs out, out of tune, that is enough. The important thing is that we bring our whole selves in response and that we continue to choose to worship. Worship is our wholehearted response to the revelation of God. And so finally, why is it important for us to be engaging with this just now? Some of you, I'm sure, are thinking, of course, the worship pastor would tell us that we need to worship as a church. But the reason why that we focused on worship as one of these areas is because worship is more than an action that we do. It is wrapped up in our identity. And there's this amazing verse in the New Testament which helps describe this to us. It's in 2 Corinthians Chapter 3, verse 18, a letter to the church in Corinth. And this is what the verse says. And we all, who with unveiled faces, because of all the work that Jesus has done, behold the Lord's glory. We see who he is. We're being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let me read that again. And we all together, who with unveiled faces behold the Lord's glory 
are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. What does this mean for us? The first half describes what we've just been talking about for the last 20 minutes. Worship is all of us together, gathered, even as we are apart, setting our full attention wholeheartedly on the character and presence of God, of reminding ourselves of all that Jesus has done. That is what is being described here, worship. And then keep reading the second half, which is so crucial for us to understand. As we worship, as we recognise who God is and give ourselves a response, we are being transformed. We are being changed to look more and more like Jesus. Worship is transformative. In this act of wonder and wholehearted response, we're being shaped to look more and more like Jesus. And so worship isn't just a distant articulation of truth. It's not something we just do on a Sunday. It is a visceral, transformative, life-changing daily choice to give ourselves to God who is both beyond us and yet is with us. Whatever it means for us to gather as church in the future, whatever our new normal becomes, at the heart of everything we do, we simply must continue to be a worshipping people as David was. Not just doers, not just meeting needs, not just activists or those passionate about social justice. All of those things are an important part of being God's people, but at root, our identity, who we are before what we do, is to be worshippers. We're people who pursue the wonder and otherness of God, who, who respond wholeheartedly, and who are being changed more and more into Jesus' likeness as we encounter the living God. In a moment, we're going to respond in worship together. But if you know, as I've been sharing, that you've been caught up in some of this stuff in the last few months. You've been so busy that you've lost perspective on who God is, or so tired that you've lost perspective. Then we would love to pray for you, for God to reveal himself to you again. Please do make use of the live prayer, which will be available from now, just the end of the gathering. And then what we're all gonna to do together is we're gonna respond in worship. I invited this week as a one-off lots of people to join us to sing in response, to remind us that as Sam leads us, worship isn't about a screen or mumbling on a sofa. It is the act of the gathered church, the people of God together, setting our full attention on God and in that place, giving him the space to shape us look, to look more and more like him. Why don't I pray for us and then we'll go into time of worship. Yeah, Father, we thank you for this time to reflect on who you are and to be reminded and challenged and inspired to pursue you more and more each day. Forgive us, God, where, we, where, we, where we've boxed you in, where we've come to you on our terms, where we have lost some of our perspective on who you are. I pray that you give us fresh perspective, even now, in this moment. Remind us of who you are and what you've done. Jesus, show us who you are again.
And in view of that, in view of all that you've done, would our natural response be to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, to wholeheartedly respond to you in worship? And trust that as we do that, you will shape us and mould us and make us look more like you. Thank you, God, for the ways that we have always gone after that as a church family. And I pray that you help us to continue to protect that as we go forward. Amen.